If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Major Tom McKay is on the board. Wild Willerskin booking the guests. In the legendary CHML newsroom, Dave Woodard and Jennifer McQueen. Here's Scott Thompson. Yeah. It is Hamilton today. I'm Scott Thompson, 900 CHML. All right. Uh, uh, oh, uh, big stories of the day. Uh, obviously, uh, the case is continuing in Windsor. The defense opens its case today uh, for the accused taking the stand in Windsor in the case of the London family that was uh, run down in that hate attack in London. Uh, the case uh, in Windsor and the defense opening its case today and uh, the accused will testify. We understand we'll keep you up to date on all of that as it becomes available. Uh, the prime minister is touring the Northwest Territories to look at the burnt forests up there. And, uh, well, Canadians are trying to get out of uh, Tel Aviv. Just saying, shouldn't he be in, in Ottawa at least looking like he's concerned about world events and crisis and things that are going on? Is just, is it me? Uh, you know, uh, right now at home listening to what's going on and, and trying to be a part of it? Or uh, again, no, let's go to a burnt forest in the Northwest Territories. And, um, you know, all we have to put up with is some question and answer uh, uh, periods with, with with the media that's following behind, wondering why we're in the middle of a burnt out forest in the Northwest Territories when there's just other stuff going on in the world. But, you know, <clears throat> that's our prime minister and that's it is what it is. So, um you know, uh, w- w- what's really interesting to stress in the situation with the Hamas attack of Israel, and 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 I am by no means an expert on this or or the history of it or 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 any of that. Um, so right off the bat, that's where I'm coming from. Um, but as I sit and I watch this all unfold and what is happening and trying to understand it and understand, um, uh, you know, why there are people. Uh, celebrating both sides, it appears, in this situation. And to me, um, you know, I, I'm not sure, and again, ignorant here, I'm not sure of, you know, if this is as much as um, um, uh, uh, an Israel-Palestine thing, if it's a left versus a right thing, uh, religion, race, what have you, to me, as an outsider trying to understand what is going on. It's democracy versus authoritarianism. Like either you elect your leader or you don't elect your leader. Or when you're electing your leader, you're doing it with a hand twisted behind your back. So, you know, at the end of the day, and unfortunately our world has become so divisive that it's not a case of right and wrong anymore, because let's be honest, what happened is terribly wrong. It's not, you know, you, you don't, I'm not going to describe it. You've heard it all. So uh, this isn't about who's right, who's left, who's right, who's wrong. Well, it is that, sorry. Um, but, but, but it's not about one side or the other. It's democracy versus authoritarianism. Either you're free to vote for your leader or you're not. Either you belong to a civilization in a democracy and you fight for a democracy, or you don't. 
And I think in all of that, in all of what's going on, we're forgetting about that. And I think that's what the allies, our allies, have been fighting for for decades. It's freedom and democracy and rights, human rights that come with that. So I don't think this is as much about one group or the other. I think that's how you divide people. I think that's how you bring people in. I think that's how you touch everybody. But really what it's about is democracy versus authoritarianism. And what we in the Western world call right versus wrong. Freedoms versus non-freedoms. And it's easy to sit back and go, well, this person, you know, my, my mother lived through World War II. Uh, I remember hearing the stories, the tales. And the players have changed, but the outcomes are the same. And so are the lessons that we learn. So we have to learn from what is happening here and try to solve issues rather than creating more conflict in other parts of the world fighting those same battles. And I'll use this example, and I'll be as sensitive as I can, and I hope I don't get in trouble. But my mother came here uh, as a young kid after World War II, and their city's blown to smithereens by the Germans, by the Nazis, came to Canada, as did many Germans, as we're all experiencing now with the latest news of the last few weeks. But when my mother came here, she didn't sit back and think about the relatives she had lost in the world war, killed by the Nazis, the destruction that had been done to her town, because she's in Canada, a land of freedom. And just like people there, there are people here who want and enjoy the same freedoms. Some of them were German. And my mother never held any of those World War II atrocities against people who had gotten out, changed, looked for a different life, saw the light, whatever you want to describe. And we have to keep that in mind as we move forward in these discussions as well. It's not about this or that, this group, that group. It's about democracy versus authoritarianism. And what side of history do you want to be on? All right. Um, you might remember we talked seven years ago about a craft that was uh, taking off and it was going to land on an asteroid. And then it was going to scrape some stuff off uh, from the surface and dig down a bit and then bring some of that stuff home seven years later. And then we talked last week or a week or two ago about how that thing had landed and with the space uh, uh, stuff on board. <laughs> I'm trying to keep it so at least I understand it. And um, and now we find out what is actually in it. What is is the makeup of this material that has come back? And boy, that is a very basic explanation. Paul Delaney with us, Professor Emeritus, Faculty of Science, Department of Physics and Astronomy, York University, and here now. Uh, thank you so much for the time, Paul. Hope you're doing well. I am indeed, Scott. Always nice to chat. So uh, you can give us the official name of this, and but it has returned, and now we are analyzing the material, and it's rich in carbon. What does that tell us? 
Right. So this is the OSIRIS-REx mission. That was the official title. And your summary was great. I mean, seven years ago it launched. It seems like yesterday to me. And now it's in the the uh, analysis labs in Houston. And soon we're going to have a few grams of it up here at the Royal Ontario Museum in Toronto. So really exciting. So yeah, we picked up, we think, somewhere in the vicinity of 250 to 300 grams of an asteroid by the name of Bennu. It's one of these what we call near-Earth asteroids. It actually crosses the orbit of the Earth and potentially will impact our planet in the future. It's not on our radar at the moment for an impact, but it could. It's it's that close to us. And so we've gone off to this asteroid with, with two things in mind. One, to scoop up material, bring it back here, analyze it, and get a real sense of the early moments of our solar system's uh, material of formation. And secondly, to understand better these asteroids from the perspective of let's get them out of the way so that they don't hurt us in the future. So um, what, with having such a, a high carbon content, what does that tell us about the asteroid? So the, the carbon content and the water content are both, if you will, what we were hoping to find. When you look at life on Earth, we are talking about carbon-based molecules. So with your DNA, your RNA is all basically built around the atom carbon and then some oxygen, nitrogen, a few other things. Life on Earth is carbon-based, but the other important ingredient is water. We can't survive without water. So carbon-based molecules, long-chain carbon-based molecules, and water, you put those two, two things together, and you have the plethora of life that is on this planet. The big question, of course, is what? how, how did all of the right ingredients for this cake mix come into play back four and a half billion years ago. And it's hard to do that analysis on Earth because we have processed everything in the intervening time. When we go out to asteroids like Bennu, that is pristine. That is material that literally has not changed in any significant way since the formation of the solar system. And so now we are looking at the primordial material that made up Earth. And we're finding, not to our great surprise, but to our relation, that a lot of the basic carbon compounds seem to have existed in the the early solar system. Water was pretty abundant in the early solar system. And it is likely that both the Earth as it formed had some of this material, but we were also additionally seeded by the impacts from meteors and asteroids in the early days of the solar system. So Bennu is a carrier, if you will, of some of the ingredients that we need to make life. So what does it tell us about where it came from? Uh, I, I guess the answer is it doesn't directly tell us anything with respect to how our how the material in our solar nebula, the cloud from which we form, how it got there. The fact remains that it was there, and we're finding those same signatures in other planetary disks. In other words, as our galaxy has evolved with time, and so now we're talking about 10 billion years, there seems to be a very natural process that allows for carbon-based molecules to be formed and to be protected inside the cocoons that represent our solar nebula. So if this is in fact the case, and Bennu will strengthen that case, we expect, then the commentary applies to other planetary systems, and that strengthens the case for life ubiquitously throughout our galaxy.
That was my next question, Paul. So how, do, <laughs> uh, what does that mean for life? Cause that's, but, but again, I was watching a bit of the uh, press conference from NASA and that's part of their mandate, I guess, is to look for life. Accurate? Absolutely. Yes. And in fact, it, it's one of the key questions that is being asked, you know, not just through NASA circles and spacefaring nations, but, you know, astronomers in their search for better understanding of how our universe is operating, we are at the same time looking for those signatures that say life is common. We have only one place that we've found life, and that's right here, and we find lots of it. And so we are trying to understand how the ingredients got to Earth and see whether or not that is a likely process that has applied all through our galaxy. And the, the evidence is beginning to stack up saying, yes, this is a common process, a common practice. And that leads us to believe, but we haven't found, that other life will exist in a variety of formats, simple life and hopefully more complex life throughout our galaxy. There, there's a lot of stars and there's a lot of real estate planets that could house these building blocks. And now the question is, can we find those signatures of life? Mm. Paul Delaney with us, Professor Emeritus, Faculty of Science Department of Physics and Astronomy, York University, analyzing on what uh, the carbon-rich uh, uh, ingredients that came back on NASA's uh, OSIRIS-REx probe. Paul, as always, fascinating stuff. Thanks for the time. Be well. You're welcome, Scott. Cheers. This is a statement that came out from uh, the Ontario NDP, a statement from opposition uh, leader Stiles, and this is in regard to MPP Sarah Jama, and uh, we've asked for both of these uh, people to come on the show, and um, uh, no luck with that. But this statement was released. Merritt Stiles, the leader of the official opposition NDP, has issued the following statement, quote, I'm thinking of everyone who is directly or indirectly impacted by the atrocities of war in Israel and Gaza, including people here in Ontario with loved ones in the region. MPP JAMA's statement yesterday did not uh, unequivocally decry the violence against Israel, Israelis by Hamas, and it uh, caused Jew uh, harm to Jewish people who are feeling pain and fear right now. It did not reflect our party's position on the war and was sent without approval. In working with MPP JAMA over the last 24 hours, I understand the personal impact that this is having on her as someone with Palestinian family members uh, she is not alone in this experience. At the same time, I have made it clear that all members of our caucus condemn Hamas terror attacks, and we stand in support of the federal NDP's position in calling for an end to the bloodshed. Uh, MPP JAMA has reaffirmed her commitment to this. New Democrats have always advocated passionately for the human rights of Palestinians and Israelis. Uh, we have stood together with communities against anti-Semitism, anti-Palestinian racism, and Islamophobia. We believe Canada has a role in securing peace in the region and support to win efforts, political solution that result in peace, security, freedom, and a mutual uh, self-determination for Israelis and Palestinians. Um, Sarah MPP Sarah JAMA from Hamilton center writes, I heard many voices yesterday raising concerns about my post. I hear them. And above all, I understand the pain many Jewish and Israelis, Israeli Canadians, including my own con constituents, must be feeling. 
I apologize. To be clear, I unequivocally condemn terrorism by Hamas on thousands of Israeli citizens. I also believe that Israelis' bombardment and siege on civilians in Gaza, as was also noted by the United Nations, is wrong. As a member of the Ontario NDB caucus, I stand in the stand by the position of our federal party and believe that violence against civilians is never justified and that there's no military solution to this conflict. So there you have it. That's the official stance from the NDP. Again, we asked both of them to come on and comment, and uh, no luck with that. Let's bring in Colin DeMello, Queen's Park Bureau Chief Global News. He is with us now. Colin, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. Hey, good afternoon. Thank you for having me, Scott. Uh, Colin, obviously, this is a very difficult situation. Um, your thoughts on uh, uh, what is coming out from the NDP on this? Many are asking for uh, the party to uh, to remove Sarah Jama. What what is the fallout of this? How deep does this go? Well, it, it is an impossible position for NDP leader Marit Stiles to be in, and now you know the Premier's office is saying that she's essentially failed a leadership test with Sarah Jama. You might recall that, you know, Sarah Jama has uh, kind of sparked controversy ever since she was first elected as an MPP, even before that, even in the actual um, uh, election, the by-election that had happened, and largely because of her views, because of her stances, and because she kind of views herself more as an activist rather than a politician. And it seems like she wanted to use her platform as a politician to really speak out against what she uh, truly believes in. Uh, ultimately, though, it also runs a bit counter to what the NDP has been saying about this entire situation uh, with the terrorist attacks in, in Israel carried out by Hamas. And so for NDP leader Marit Stiles, it is a no-win situation. Either she you know, ejects Sarah Jama from her party, she comes from a riding that you know, the former leader Andrea Horvath held, and so this is an important riding for the NDP, or you keep her in the party and run the risk of people seeing your party as being tolerant of anti-Semitic views. And so there, there is really a no-win situation for her here. But the question is, you know, eventually voters will have to judge the NDP on this. Voters in Hamilton, voters across the province. And, you know, for the progressive conservatives and for the liberals, they will use this as an opportunity to say, look, You know, if this is down to a morality question for an individual voter, here is the record of the NDP. You decide whether or not you that sits well with you as the voter. Um, You know, if this was a one off statement, you know, people might be forgiving of this. But obviously, and those in Hamilton Center know that this, uh, you know, this certainly isn't the first time it's happened quite a few times. How many times? Can you apologize like this? How many times can you retract something after you you let it out? Yeah, I mean, th- that, that really is a good question, right? I mean, the NDP seems to have a fairly high bar for ejecting members from uh, their caucus, right? One good example is uh, Joel Harden, uh, an NDP MPP out of uh, Ottawa. Uh, you know, he had been pictured at one point with a, with, a, uh, with a protester who held a big sign that said F. Doug Ford. Uh, and and the, the word was actually written out, the swear word. And so initially, Joel Harden, you know, had denied to the party that he knew what was written. And then he admitted that he knew what was written. Uh, but he remains a member of the caucus. Right. On the progressive conservative side, the threshold for being booted out of the party is much lower. And that's because uh, they have you know a healthy enough majority that they can stand to lose a few members without actually uh, right. jeopardizing their majority. 
for the NDP, we don't know exactly where their bar is here. I mean, you take a look at uh, how this whole situation has played out. Uh, Sarah Jama marches in, you know, pro-Palestinian, anti-Israeli protests. And then, you know, she issues this statement. The NDP leader says, we want her to retract the statement, right? This, this, uh, this declaration by Marit Stolz goes out publicly and it takes Sarah Jammer 24 hours, nearly 24 hours, to actually issue any kind of public response. And even then, she doesn't delete the original statement that she had made. So then, you know, it begs the question, well, what kind of leadership and control over the caucus does Mart Stiles actually have? I mean, you're, you're talking about politics here. Caucus discipline is important, and the mm-hmm. leader's management of that caucus is also important, because ultimately this reflects in the party, and it, and it goes to show that you know, this one rookie, somewhat rogue MPP seems to have a lot more power and can, you know, basically have her way over uh, Marit Stiles as the leader of the party. Uh, so are we taking from this press release, uh, Colin, that, yep, she's made the call, Marit Stiles, and she stays, and you just wait and see what the fallout is to what you do next? Yeah, that's right. I mean, she she is going to remain a member of the caucus for now. It, it seems it seems like, um, you know, Mars Stiles is also empathetic to the fact that uh, Sarah Jenna has uh, family, according to these statements, uh, who are Palestinians and that there might be, a, you know, a personal uh, viewpoint here, which is why she's kind of so passionately arguing in favor of one side. Um, you know, ultimately, Sarah Jama kind of says that she agrees with the views of the federal NDP as an example. And so as a result, she's going to be remaining in the party. I don't know to what else. Um, you know, what else Sarah Jama is being asked to do or told to do uh, or whether she'll be sidelined in any way. She doesn't really hold you know, much of a position with the party right now. Um, but, you know, this this is going to be used as a wedge tool for a long time by the progressive conservatives. The premier asked for Sarah Jama to resign as an MPP, saying that her views are no uh are not necessarily welcome in the Ontario legislature. So it'll it'll be up to the legislature to see what they want to do, if they want to do anything. They, they would need unanimous consent. But as of right now, it seems like Sarah Jemma has received a talking to or had a conversation with the NDP leadership. No consequences, really, and she remains in the party. Colin DeMello with us, Queen's Park Bureau Chief, Global News. Make sure you're watching Global Tonight for more on all of this. As always, Colin, thanks for the time. Be well. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. You know, it, it seems when we book a guest to talk about issues, all of a sudden something changes, and um, there's something more important, uh, more important or pertinent to talk to them about. Uh, Dan McTagg with us, president of Canadians for Affordable Energy, former Liberal MP, uh, going to talk about the Trans Mountain Pipeline and if we are ever going to recoup the uh, roughly 35 billion in taxpayers' money that's been sunk into this thing. Well, it of course is continually stalled. But I digress. Dan, how are you? Uh, thanks for taking the time to join us today. Oh, good to be here, Scott. Thanks for having me. So we've talked before we get to this issue, Dan. Obviously, um, you know, we talked when Russia invaded Ukraine and what that meant as far as energy prices, how it put more stress on supply chains and such, and and just the general fallout of it and the demand and and the shift in where we get energy. Now we have a situation with Hamas invading uh, or attacking Israel. And and now this sort of this conflict has started. How does this affect energy around the world? Does it have any impact? What is the impact? Well, for now, there is no impact. There there was thought to be some risk on Monday, and that's why we saw oil go up about three and a half bucks a barrel. But it's since come down. Nothing to see here. And of course, uh, 
markets are back to doing what they usually do, finding all sorts of excuses to ignore fundamentals, um, panicking about anything and everything. So uh, there was a time when there was some reliability and predictability in commodities, but that's been hijacked by money managers and hedgers and uh, those using artificial intelligence, day traders, people uh, who don't look at uh, commodities markets as buy and hold. They look at as the same strategy used in the stock market, buy and sell, yeah. buy and sell, buy and sell. And so it creates an enormous amount of volatility, um, but it does suggest that there is, in fact, going to continue to be uh, upward pressure on price, like it or not, simply because we're not producing uh, nations that have an abundance of this energy for a variety of reasons. They're not getting into market, notably Canada, with the third largest provable reserves in the world, which uh, doesn't seem to be able to build a pipeline. And I'm not just talking oil, of course, natural gas as well. 18 projects proposed, 18 companies put their money in, eight, and uh, so far we have zero projects built. So it's not a good scenario. And funny enough, Scott, a lot of people tend to not think about this industry or they're believing it's all about climate, whatever. I, whatever your, your reason to, to trivialize, ignore, or attack this industry, the one thing you can't get around is a 25 to $35 billion a year in net gross revenues that they put in the jeans, the pockets for federal, provincial, and yes, here in Hamilton, our municipal officials. So, you know, it's, it's easy to look a gift horse in the mouth. But what happens if you don't have those kind of revenues? Well, you know what happens. <laughs> the country atrophies and you wind up with big debts and uh, higher interest rates. There's a thought. So uh, obviously we purchased this and eventually hope to sell it. Um, how uh, is that going to, as we look back at this, a few years from now and say we do sell it and say it even makes its way to apparently they're talking with indigenous communities located along the, the pipeline's path. How will we look back at this? Will we have made money? Will we have lost? How, how will we look back at this? Well, we've lost a lot of money, not just on the project itself. We've lost money because we've got a lot of people leaving the country and saying, there's no way we want to invest in anything to do with what the world is going to need more of. And don't take my word for it. Yesterday, the Energy Information Agency, Department of Energy of the United States said, hey, folks, doesn't matter what you do, do all the efficiencies and all the wonderful stuff and all the new techs that you think you might get someday, demand for oil is going to continue well past 2050. So this fantasy of net zero and all these other things and navel gazing, see, oh, shucks, we don't need oil, you're crazy, uh, because that's not, it's not realistic. What is important to understand, though, with respect to the uh, position taken by the Canadian government on, on this Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion was that you had a private company that said, we are going to build this and we will make money from it and uh, we will be able to squeeze out another 800,000 barrels of Canadian oil a day, which means the revenues for the government's uh, job opportunities uh, and uh, capital flying into the country would continue to, uh, to, to impress. But what the federal government did is it said, yeah, we're going to give you this approval to the company, and uh, but we're going to uh, allow your approval to be basically uh, whipsawed um, by environmentalists, other activists, many of them funded from outdoors, from, out, uh, from, from far and beyond, some of them funded by charities that don't have any kind of oversight. And they're not charities at all. They're political activist organizations. Regardless, at the end of the day, the Canadian government is going to get sued and would have lost several billions of dollars 
had it not taken over the pipeline because it basically failed to honor its commitment to the company that that had done all its due diligence, crossed all the T's, dotted all the I's. And at the end of the day, it was up to the federal government. Either go to court, lose billions and get nothing, and have a company hmm. walk away, or try to manage this. And of course, when you involve government in something the private sector does very well, it doesn't usually or very often wind up very well. Stay tuned. It ain't built yet. Dan McTagg with us, president of Canadians for Affordable Energy, former Liberal MP. Dan, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Good to be here. Thanks again, Scott. Have a great day. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. In a recent piece for the National Post, Tasha Kerrigan argues lumping Israelis and Palestinians into the false dichotomy of colonizer and colonized, as Hamilton Center Ontario NDP MPP Sarah Jama has, only serves to perpetuate division and violence. And the latest in the National Post is entitled, The Decolonization Movement Will Condemn Us to the Brutality of Our Past. And joining us, Tasha Kerrigan, journalist, writer, National Post, G-Zero Media, and her Substack page, In My Opinion, on author of The Right Path. Tasha, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am. Thank you, Scott. You say in this colonization, the colonization lens has become a trap that pits one group against each other. Explain. What do you mean? Well, decolonization used to refer to uh, the removal of governments, i.e. government, the British government in India, uh, British or French rule in Africa, for example. But it has morphed now into a movement um, which basically seeks to remove uh, Western, I guess, uh, elements, thoughts, structures on a host of levels that have nothing to do with this kind of self-affirmation for people who were governed by another entity. It sounds like a lot, but basically it means that instead of liberation, it turns to tearing things down and pitting people against each other. And we see a lot of this. Um, in the decolonization conversations that we have here in North America, and we're seeing it now with regard to Israel. And uh, I reference this because of the tweet that Sarah Jama put out, the Ontario NDP MPP, um, who said that she's reflecting on her role in the settler colonial system with regard to Palestine. And what I, what I reject in that is that it's the notion that, um, you know, the Jews were uh, simply colonizers. Well, they actually were colonized people, too. And it's this blurring of history and this rejection, this sort of black and white view of like, you know, living one thing or another that has led to this constant, I think, um, struggle that we're seeing today where people reject ideals simply because we say, well, those people were, are in charge and they must be wrong and they must be bad. No, everyone's been a victim throughout history. There's, it's gone back and forth. This lens has to end because it leads nowhere. Uh, colonization, a, a buzzword. Yeah, it is a buzzword. It's become a buzzword. People want to use it to decolonize yeah. everything. Like even the math curriculum, we talk about that, you know, the irony of course there, again, it ignores history. The math curriculum, uh, math itself was formed by Arabic scholars, became a certain, a numerical system. So to say again, to reject it because you feel it's, it's Western because it's colonial it's, it's a sort of simplistic reduction that everything is now being decolonized. It doesn't mean anything anymore. And I think moving, we have to move away from that because it's like a reflex people use whenever they don't like something. Um, they say, let's decolonize it. It's oppressive. Well, that's too simple, and that's not really what we're talking about here. Why are we so quick to accept this and not challenge it? 
Well, because it's hard to have this conversation. Um, you often get accused of being unsympathetic to people, mm. such as uh, First Nations, Indigenous people, who did suffer greatly, yes, at the hands of colonial governments in back in the day. Um, but to say that that is the continuation, that we're continuing to perpetrate the same types of abuses now, when we recognize human rights and we recognize the importance of those things, I think it's false. Uh, so you get accused of being racist, to be very blunt. So people are afraid to challenge these things. Um, but I think we have to because it, it leads to the kinds of conversations we're having now around this situation where we see this intense, terrible brutality that's been practiced on the Israelis by Hamas, not all Palestinians, but by Hamas. Mm -hmm. And yet people are saying, well, this is an example of overthrowing colonists. I mean, no, yeah, um, yeah. it's terrible. <laughs> Um, uh, in her statement, Merritt Stiles, leader of uh, the Ontario NDP, said that uh, she understands the personal impact this is having on her, meaning uh, MPP JAMA, as someone with Palestinian family members, she is not alone in this experience. I think of my own mother's experience and living through the Second World War and then coming to Canada and all of the freedoms and opportunities it provided and her uh, keeping that in check and not carrying um, uh, old, old thoughts with her, old grudges with her. That being said, uh, everyone has lost somebody in war who's experienced this. So why is her situation any different from anybody else's? Well, this is the thing. It, it is not. And that's what I discuss as well, because the notion of being only uniquely a colonizer or a colonized is, is false. Yeah. People have been both. I mean, Irish Catholics, for example, um, in Canada, because they are white, would be considered settlers or colonizers. But if you go to Northern Ireland, they were displaced hundreds of years ago by the British and the Scottish. Uh, they had centuries of conflict, even into the last century, where 3,500 people died in the Troubles in Northern Ireland, uh, you know, people have been on both sides of a ledger. And even Indigenous communities in Canada, Indigenous nations, were very warlike back in the day. We're talking hundreds of years ago again. But, you know, the Israel-Palestine conflict is, is also thousands of years old. It's not a, a uniquely modern situation. But the point I'm making is no. that if you go back, you, you know, people, people were on both sides at different points in history. It's not a reference point for moving forward. Is this really not about democracy versus authoritarianism? Is it really not freedom versus not voting for your leader versus not? Well, unfortunately, that's where the conversation gets taken to, because decolonization has become a synonym for rejecting anything that is rooted in Western thought. So, for example, democracy, um, the idea that, uh, you know, you should have certain freedoms um, and that, you know, people have certain views of society that are, that are ruling Western legal systems, for example, uh, the scientific method, ideas that were developed during the Enlightenment are rejected because they are Western and therefore they are colonial and bad. And it's interesting because I've read a considerable amount on the subject. Um, one of my favorite writers is actually an African scholar, uh, Olusumi Taiwo, who writes about this in Africa and says, the problem is many of our decolonizers too easily conflate modernity and westernization. And he says that they're not the same thing. You can be a colonized people and you can throw off your colonizers but still accept certain ideas that are universal. And that's what he finds we should do as, as people in Africa. He recommends mm. this, you know, nations there can move forward with the legal system or like India did that, that takes elements 
from colonizers or people who were in a position of authority that they threw off, it doesn't mean that they are continuing, uh, you know, that they, they cannot accept ideas that are universal. And this is what he says, and this is why decolonization is exactly like he said. They want to take people to a place that is not about freedom, not about democracy, but about an authoritarian view that is very different than the one I think most Canadians would want to see. Tasha Carradine with us. Her latest in the National Post, the decolonization movement will condemn us to the brutality of our past. Well said, Tasha. Thanks for the time. Be well. Thanks, Scott. You too. A quick break here. We're coming right back. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right. We certainly know what's been going on over the last six days with uh, Hamas attacking uh, Israel and the fallout of. Joining us now, Arl Brown, Professor of International Relations, Senior Member of the Monk School of Global Affairs, University of Toronto. And here now, Arl, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Thank you. Uh, Arl, um, I, I don't mean to oversimplify this, um, but I'm trying very hard to understand it from a distance. Um, is this about uh, Palestine and Israel uh, and the people of each, or is this about democracy versus authoritarianism? We really, at this uh, extraordinarily difficult time, need to try to get as much moral and legal clarity as possible. And there are certain key posts, key principles that really have to be enunciated uh, because it is so essential uh, at this stage. And I think what can help us is to look at some very recent developments in the democratic world. There was a profoundly important statement issued by five crucial democracies, the Quince, United States, United Kingdom, Germany, France, and Italy. And in this, they stated, that Hamas was an organization that did not represent the aspirations of Palestinian people. On the contrary, that they brought nothing but misery and bloodshed to the Palestinian uh, population. And then they uh, addressed the moral issue. And they said that, and if I may quote, that the terrorist actions of Hamas have no justification, no legitimacy, and must be universally condemned. So what we are looking here in the case of what Hamas did, and the horrors come and multiply by the day, by the hour, as we learn more of what has happened. What they did was not a result of some uh, kind of uh, inevitable consequence of conflict or an inevitable result uh, or uh, an unintended result of some military action. It was deliberate. It was classified by leader after leader as terrorism on a par with uh, what ISIS has done at its worst. We have the statement from uh, President Biden, where he talked about parents butchered using their body to try to protect their children, stomach-turning reports of babies being killed, mm. entire families slain, people massacred while attending a musical festival, women raped assaulted, paraded as trophies. We have, in fact, multiple reports <clears throat> where uh, naked bodies of women uh, who were captured uh, and, and killed by Hamas paraded inside Gaza, where supporters of Hamas were distributing sweets and spitting on these bodies, this kind of desecration of the dead. 
And just within the past uh, couple of hours, the American Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, gave a press conference, and he looked really visibly shaken. We talked about the images that he just saw, photos, Mm -hmm. and he didn't go into the most gruesome details where he talked about the bullet-ridden bodies of babies, of decapitated people. And he said that no country can or will tolerate the slaughter of citizens or simply return to the conditions that allowed it to take place. And he added, Israel has the right, indeed, indeed the obligation to defend itself and to ensure that this never happens again. So in a sense, we are at possibly a moral inflection point and also at the military inflection point. And I think it is important to go back to the classification of Hamas for years in democratic states, virtually all democratic states, as a terrorist organization. We know that they are listed as a terrorist entity together with Islamic Jihad in the Canadian Criminal Code. And what was done here, it was done deliberately and with joy uh, by Hamas, that this means that that designation was well-deserved. So for the future, does does Israel just keep going until uh, they're gone, until Hamas has been rid of the region? This is where there could be this military inflection point, that it seems the democracies, the key democracies, have come to the conclusion that what we believe then collectively Israel and the West, that somehow Hamas was moderating, was false. It was a delusion that Hamas could be contained, that it could be not just moderated, uh, Mm -hmm. but that it could be deterred. None of that works. And so we have to look at the nature of terrorism. It is nihilistic. It is not about particular goals. It is about a bloodthirst that is insatiable. And this is what we've seen in the case of Hamas and their junior partner, Islamic Jihad. And what Anthony Blinken basically said was that Israel has an obligation to make sure that this can never happen again. And when the five crucial huge democracies declared that Hamas does not represent the aspiration of the Palestinian people, on the contrary, they bring the Palestinian people all this horror. What they were saying was that Hamas has to be removed, that Hamas has no legitimacy. And that is going to be a very, very difficult task. But it doesn't seem that anything else would work because Hamas has taken something like 150 hostages. And there may be Canadians among them. We know that there are Canadian dead. But it also appears from what these countries have said and decided and what the United States has now been repeating for the past number of days, that Hamas has also been holding the Palestinian population of Gaza as hostage. Mm. So we don't have much time left, Arl, but what happens to Gaza and those not associated with Hamas in the future? This is where, again, we need to make sure who is held responsible for this. Because Hamas, instead of building shelters for the population, bomb shelters for the civilian population, they used billions of dollars to build a vast network of tunnels to shield and protect their rockets, 
in their guns and their explosives. Instead of storing up medicine, water, and food for the civilians, they built huge stocks of weapons. They engaged in unspeakable butchery and exposed their population as human shields. So who ultimately is responsible for this? And we know that Israel has not and cannot fight the same way, that there is that restraint. Because when you look at the firepower that is available to Israel, if Israel used the same methods as Hamas, there wouldn't be a hundred or a thousand people dead in Gaza. There would be hundreds of thousands. Mm. And as the former chief justice of Israel, Aaron Barak, said, Israel as a democracy fights with a hand tied behind his back. Arl Brown with us, Professor of International Relations, Senior Member of the Monk School of Global Affairs, University of Toronto. Arl, thank you for the insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you. All right, a McMaster University team is recruiting Hamiltonians for a study looking into seniors' driving habits. To talk more about all of this, Brenda Verklelian is with us, School Rehabilitation Science Faculty of Health Sciences, McMaster University, and here now. Brenda, thank you for the time. Hope you're doing well. Uh, doing just fine. Thank you, Scott. So what are you doing here? What's the reasoning behind this? Yeah, so thanks for having me on the show. And I bet lots of your listeners are driving right now. So I hope they're paying attention uh, to what they're doing because we can be easily distracted uh, behind the wheel by all kinds of things, including talk radio. But um, yeah, so here I am. I'm an occupational therapist, Scott. And what I saw when I was working uh, in the community was the issue when people have medical related changes. And often those things can happen as we move further along, if we're fortunate enough to uh, our lifespan. And a lot of those things are just a normal part of aging. However, uh, they can also uh, start to accumulate and that can have an impact on on all kinds of things that we do that occupy our time, hence the term occupation and occupational therapist. Um, so we want to enable people to do those things, support people to be able to do those things despite those changes. But we want to, uh, when I would talk to people when I was working in the hospital, a lot of them were older, and I would ask them, what what is really important to you? What do you want to get back to doing? And it was driving. So Scott, I will say I started my career really thinking about, gosh, uh, how do we get you know unsafe drivers off the road? And I know lots of your hmm. listeners are probably can point their finger at a few, not watch what finger you're pointing, of course, but uh, uh, can point their finger at a few people around them and, and point out bad bad habits. But if we're pointing fingers, we should point four fingers back at ourselves because we also have bad habits uh, behind the wheel. So all of that to say, uh, very interested in maintaining people's skills, uh, looking at the new automobile that is changing, it's advancing um, in terms of technology, in terms of electrification. Um, and so we want to take a look at people's uh, habits behind the wheel and help them maintain their skills, Scott, uh, later you in know- life. You bring up a very valid point, Brent. I mean, for the most part, the rules of the road stay the same over years. Obviously, more congestion, more traffic, more of everything. But the vehicle, the motor vehicle, is completely different now than it was even just a few years ago. Yeah, and I'm 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 really excited to be partnering with the McMaster Automotive Resource Center. And some of you may have driven by. There's these big green letters on Longwood that say Mark, and within there they are doing uh, some really uh, advanced work in terms of looking at uh, yeah the electrification of the automobile. And Dr. Leah Mahdi is a Canada Excellence Research Chair that we were able to recruit to McMaster, and he's leading 
a huge team. But you're not surprised to hear that we need to think about humans who use cars. Uh, and uh, and so uh, that's where I uh, come in with some of my work and being able to bring, uh, uh, you know, have the engineering students interact uh, with, with drivers and older drivers in particular who have lots of experience, uh, Scott. In fact, they are one of the safest groups on the road, despite the stigma and stereotypes that exist. In fact, it's probably one of the most stigmatized groups in many ways are uh, aging and uh, and the aging drivers. We need to break those stereotypes. Uh, people need their cars in Canada. I'm going to say, unfortunately, the way our society is um, is constructed, right? Uh, we still need our car to get around, to go to the places that are important to us, to be with people uh, that we love and maybe just like, um, uh, because that's where uh, that's where things happen. That's where our occupations happen. That's where activities of daily living happen. I remember sitting in a in, in in someone's new car very recently, and my first question was, "How the heck do I start it?" Like, I mean, it's just it's so different. It seems. Um, who yeah. are you recruiting, and and what are you looking for? Yeah, thanks, Scott. So we are. Um, yeah. The, so the I'll just bring up one other thing is that the Eco Car team, uh, which is made up uh, comprised of engineering students, have one of the most advanced automobiles. They're in a competition, uh, which involves eighteen teams across North America, and we have two from Canada, uh, one being McMaster, and they're done really well. They're in fourth place uh, out of those eighteen teams, and we want to bump them up, of course. And so mm. part of that is interacting with the community and learning about the needs of different groups. Um, and we talk about mobility. But all of that to say, you're right, the car is changing and we really are looking for healthy older adults uh, interested in having their driving monitored uh, with a device that would go into their car. They need to be age 65 to 79. Um, and that's because at age 80 here in Ontario, uh, older adults undergo a senior driver renewal program. Right. And there's lots mm -hmm. of comments, I'm sure, that people have about that age 80 and older uh, program. But nonetheless, that is a program we have. So we're trying to start conversations earlier um, about driving, about understanding people's mobility needs. And that's why we're aiming for that 65 to 79 group. We're looking for healthy so as much as I talked about medical related changes, um, this device is, is can collect all kinds of data, including cameras, um, a lot like a dash cam, which many people already have on their on their vehicle. So. Um, so yeah, that's uh, that's sort of the main crux. I'm going to say that we have already had a tremendous response from the community. So thank you so much to uh, to people who've already emailed our research study team. Um, actually, I'm going to say we're overwhelmed with the response. I mean, driving is such a sensitive issue uh, for people, <laughs> and uh, and so I'm very grateful to have been able to get the story out uh, to our uh, community. Really quickly, if we're interested, where do we go? Uh, so we, you can go to macage at mcmaster.ca and write me an email. We'll get you some information about the study. So it's M-A-C-A-G-E, so macage at mcmaster.ca. We also have the Road Skills website, but we'll, uh, we'll share some information with you uh, if you just uh, send us an email. Brenda Verkeelen with a School Rehabilitation Science Faculty of Health Sciences, McMaster University, recruiting Hamilton drivers, seniors, uh, to watch your habits. Don't take it personally. Brenda, thanks for the time. Good luck. Thanks, Scott. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. We talk a lot about hate. We talk a lot about how hate and hate crimes are in the, are on the increase. Why is that? Why do we hate? 
do we know do we need to know who is doing the hating should we be calling out those who hate as extremes divide us to talk more about all of this steve jordans is with us professor of psychology university of toronto and with us now steve thanks for the time hope you're doing well i, I am scott thanks great to be with you again all right. Obviously, tense times. I've had a lot of people send me notes and say, wow, I'm not feeling good. This is just one thing after another, after another, after another. Uh, and we hear so much about hate on the rise. But the majority of us, Steve, don't hate anyone. We just want to get along with our lives. So how does hate increase and take over the mainstream middle class this way? Yeah, when we kind of look at the psychology of, uh, we'll say hate, but let me see if we can modify that a little bit as we go. But a lot of it is rooted uh, primarily in fear uh, and fear often that's derived from ignorance. So, you know, as an example, imagine we walk into a room and there are a bunch of creatures from another planet and we don't know anything about this planet. We don't know anything about these people. Um, when we walk into that, our brain that likes to predict things, likes to kind of know what is the right thing to say? What, what, what's the difference between a funny joke and an offensive joke? Um, how do I show somebody I'm interested um, in what they're saying or, or not? You know, all of these things we learn by being around those individuals. And if we're with a bunch of individuals that we don't understand well, we don't know, then we get fearful. We, we get worried. They become a threat of a sort, a threat of us behaving in the wrong way, saying the wrong thing. Um, and so often that ignorance produces a sort of fear. And we'll talk about this in psychology as in-groups and out-groups. The in-groups, we kind of know they're the people we interact with a lot, understand, and we feel comfortable around them. The out-groups, we feel less comfortable. And when we come to a point of where we're feeling fear or stress or low self-esteem, it's often the out-groups we blame. They become the easy targets. Uh, and so that's what sort of turns into the hate sort of um, behavior where suddenly, you know, I'm feeling threatened. I'm feeling scared. I don't understand your group very well. And so you become a target for my fear. And that can come through as hate. Most probably just want to get along with their life and don't even necessarily recognize what groups are, are bothered by what or this or the other. It seems to be fueled by the extremes, uh, and some are trying to perpetuate those fears. Yeah, yeah. And and this is, you know, from everything I said, what's the cure to hate, so to speak? The cure is often education, getting to know those other groups, interacting with them. And, and often if, if you're a group that feels like, you know, you are being the subject of prejudice and hate, one of the best things you can do is try to educate people and who you are, what you are about. The more they understand you and feel comfortable, the less threatening you become. Um, and so this extremist stuff that you talk about, it doesn't do that. It, it does not give you any reason to educate or understand the other. Uh, it instead demonizes and dehumanizes the other. It make it fuels your fear and it makes you want to be worried about those people, often with you know uh, very extreme emotional claims being made about their behavior or whatnot. And that's the way hate can be stoked. Um, and certainly extremist groups have weaponized psychology in a way that's that's truly breathtaking. And, um, and that's the force we all have to fight now. Do we have to identify who is hating who as not to implicate everyone and cause further divisiveness? Because it seems, um, well, I'll leave it at that. 
Yeah, I mean, I mean, it, it is a tricky question, and and to the extent the who's are important, I think it's sometimes these are the who's who need to understand each other a little better. And even right. you know, as an example, in in the current world, when, when I watch everything that's going on with Israel and Palestine, I know it's a complex, um, a very complex situation that a simple black and white view is is really not respecting the reality of, of all the forces at play there. And I certainly feel for me, when I start watching these things and I see things that I don't understand how they could possibly be happening, what it tells me is I need to learn more. I need to go and, and do some, I need to reacquaint myself for the, for, with the history of that region and and the dynamics that are at play um, because that's the only way I can get past that emotional that quick emotional response and actually have a more thoughtful shades of gray kind of response where you can start to realize that just saying you know side X or side y is right or wrong that that can be a little oversimplistic um, it can be true at some level and still not acknowledging the whole reality of the story and I think it's only by acknowledging that, and understanding each other's perspectives that we can ever bridge that. I, I think the reason, Steve, I, I, I mentioned, do we have to identify who is, is, is hurting or hating who? Because it seems everyone is being implicated and we're all being painted with the same brush, whereas that's not necessarily the case, i.e., 10 people in a room, four people are fighting two against two. That doesn't necessarily bring in or sway the other six in the room. It's a fight between those two groups. I guess that's my reason for identifying, not to point fingers or lay blame, but just to take the divisiveness out of it. And it's like, this is not everybody. This is just a couple of segments of the population. Yeah, well, it certainly is the case. There's there's something from psychology we call the availability heuristic, which which says if something comes to mind easily, um, and this this is the classic example. Like, is it better to is it safer to go for a ride in your car or or to go on an airplane right now? And you know, many mm-hmm. of us naturally the first thought is, oh, airplanes are much more dangerous. We think that because when there is a problem on an airplane, a crash or something like that, it's major yeah. news. We hear it big time, um, and when we keep hearing about those accidents, we start to think they're much more common and frequent than they are. The car accidents, which really are more frequent, we don't hear about so much. Mm. And so the same thing when we have this, you know, we're exposed, let's say there's 10% that's extreme on one side and 10% extreme on the other side. But if they are dominating the news, if that's what we are seeing, we Mm. start to feel like the whole world has been split in these two and the 80% in the middle um, can get lost because they just don't come to mind like those loud voices do. So it can certainly make us feel like the world is much more divided than it is. Um, and, and at some level, I think you are right to be able to say, hey, let's step back a little bit and look at the big picture. You know, Are things as bad as they want? Is, is there still a real sane middle group of people mm-hmm. um and 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 is that where our hope lies is is to get those extremes back into that group steve jordan's with us professor of psychology university of toronto helping us understand what is happening uh in the world today steve as always thanks for talking us down uh much appreciated be well you too scott thank you Sandra has text, and this is on uh, my rant about the Prime Minister being uh, uh, in the Northwest Territories, walking for the, through the burnt forest as opposed to be in Ottawa, attending to what's going on uh, with world crisis and such. And Sandra says, and a lot of people, speak, you know, defend the Prime Minister. 
Still, if he tends to world matters, he is criticized for abandoning his own country. If he tries to help the Northwest Territories out, then he's ignoring Israel. He can't really win. (laughs) Oh, there's always an excuse for poor old JT, isn't there? Can he do both from Ottawa like the staff is? Come on, eight years, embarrassment after embarrassment. It's where he's at, out of touch, walking through a burnt forest. We need change. Just like we do every few years. You don't get to rule forever, nor does this party. Left, right. Left, right. Right, left. Left, right. Right, left. It's amazing how in the last few years we've just become so extreme. We've just become so extreme that we forget that there's lots of options. And most of us don't vote for who is great, who we love. It's who we don't want. Let's bring in Tim Powers, Chairman, Summa Strategies, Managing Director of Abacus Data, and with us now. Tim, thank you for the time. Hope you're doing well. Scott, you got a lot of a lot of angst there towards the PM today. <laughs> probably probably well deserved. That a boy. I have a lot of angst against the PM for about the last two and a half years, Tim. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. It is not a new phenomenon. That is right. I I see that to you, Mr. Scott. Okay, so we all know that the reason that the Prime Minister and his party are doing so poorly is because it's just lack of communication. They just have not got their message out. Nobody knows or understands where the Prime Minister is coming from. We just don't get him after eight years. Uh, and I don't know, today, when we're all talking about a crisis in Israel, he's wandering through a forest in the Northwest Territories. Is this good communications, Tim? Well, you're right to raise questions about it, right? Look, I think on one side, you can be a world leader and be anywhere in the world uh, if you have the technology and attend to um, whatever the challenges are. Uh, But optically, when there are tough things happening in the world, like the Hamas terror attack and the subsequent war uh, in, in the Middle East, you would prefer you would think to be in your national capital where you have all of the mechanisms and levers at your disposal to uh, deal with those uh, those circumstances. I mean, this is a funny one, because in some ways it's not just a testament to the fact that the prime minister symbolically looks to be out of touch. It's probably also reflective of the fact, God, you've seen a lot of this this week come out as it's related to uh, how nations are dealing with the te- Hamas uh, terror attack. And, you know, Canada hasn't been front and center with some of its other G7 partners, the Quint, as they're called, uh, five of the G7 countries, including Canada and Japan, who have put out, you know, some forceful group statements on this issue. Although, you know, to be fair to the prime minister, I think he said the right things about this conflict. You can yeah. see there have been other stories about how, Canada's influence isn't what it was. And I think some of that's being brought to bear here yet again in this terrible tale of terror in the Middle East. So uh, so because he's not involved, because he has been excluded from very important strategic meetings over the last little while, he's just going about his business? Because um, it seems either he's taking full credit for everything or he's running in the opposite direction. <laughs> I, I think they've just really lost the sense of what to do. Like, to again, I'll give him credit for this, as I'm sure you actually would. Yeah, I did. Uh, yeah. No, Sunday night. 
Sunday night when he and Polyev, mayor of Ottawa, were at that very important uh, supporting event around Israel. They all said the right things and did the right things. And he deserved credit around that. But then kind of wandered off again. There's been a, you know, a, a, a frustration of Canadians trapped in Israel around whether Canada is going to be able to repatriate them, how it's going to be done. Melanie Jolie, the foreign affairs minister, has been out in front of that, but less so the prime minister. So it's like they don't know what to do anymore, if they ever it, did. So, it, yeah. Sense. Well, I think you hit the nail on the head. Never did. It's just the world wasn't in the crisis that it was. I remember very vividly when he got elected, Canada is back. back, Uh, And just honestly, Tim, the opposite has happened. Well, look, again, what was it a few months ago, Scott? We were not part of a a big Pacific um, intelligence and security initiative involving Australia Mm -hmm. and and New Zealand and other countries. So a lot of that, too, I think, comes down to, and Trudeau's not the sole person to blame, but he has been prime minister for eight years. You know, our military's not properly equipped. Other, We are doing good things in the Ukraine, but we have to be in more than one place at once. But while we're in the Ukraine, we're still having NATO learn that we're not going to meet our 2% commitment on uh, on military. You know, our allies do want us to show up, sometimes with equipment, sometimes with diplomacy. We've done that in the past, but it's been probably since the early years of Afghanistan, that uh, the Afghanistan conflict in the 2000s, that Canada has had significant global influence because of their participation in a conflict and the good work that our soldiers, uh, men and women, have done. It seems that he is more interested in his own personal agenda than what is top of mind with Canadians. And, you know, avoid, you know, forget about affordability, housing and all the health care, the other crises that are going on. It seems that climate change trumps everything. So it doesn't matter how bad it gets for us. Hey, I'm saving the planet. And if there ain't no planet, there's none of any of this. And he just keeps using that as his default answer, like, that that his position on climate change uh, trumps everything. Is that accurate? It certainly seems, I I would say it this way. I think it's the item he wants to be remembered by, because it's probably not a bad thing to be remembered by because of the state of the climate uh, and climate change. However, there are, you know, serious uh, interceding other events, the war in the Middle East, the conflict with India, uh, Canadians' economic crisis. You can't, be a one-trick prime minister. I mean, go back to Mulroney, who had to uh, deal with the the ending of the Cold War, the collapse of the Berlin Wall, the ending of apartheid, which Canada played a key role in. You have to be a prime minister who can chew more than one stick of gum and walk to a tune that isn't solely about your preferred issue. Uh, I would agree with that. Where do we, uh, how does he move forward with this? Um, does he kind of let Melanie Jolie handle all of the heavy lifting? Uh, is he just trying to, this distracts uh, the stuff that went on with India, the Nazi stuff in the House of Commons? Is he just staying low here? It looks like he's staying out of the way. Uh, again, he, he has had the right messages. Perhaps his view is if I stay out of the way, uh, and, and maybe that's the advice he's getting, Scott, because he's yeah. a lightning rod, right? He is yeah. a lightning rod more than he's ever been. 
So yeah. that may be what he's doing, let Melanie Jalibi up front and see if that helps their political fortune. We're not talking about that idiotic sort of pledge of last week of soon, Scott, soon, groceries will be cheaper. Really? Yeah. Soon. <laughs> Christmas is coming soon. My present to you is coming soon. But uh, groceries, <laughs> turkeys, they're not getting cheaper. Hey, if he is such a lightning rod, Tim, he should get out of that forest. He's going to start another fire. <laughs> Tim. Well, you're good at your work, Scott Thompson. Tim Powers, Chairman, Summa Strategies, Managing Director, Abacus Data. Tim, thanks for the time. As always, be well. Take care, buddy. Bye. Coming up after the 6 o'clock news, you can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. It's Scott Radley. He is here now. Scott, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am well. How are you? I'm doing well. Wanted to ask you your thought. Merritt Stiles, leader of uh, the NDP, issuing a statement. Uh, MPP, uh, Hamilton Center, Sarah Jama stays in. Uh, I'm reading just a portion of it. Um, uh, MPP Jama's uh, statement yesterday did not unequivocally decry the violence against Israelis by Hamas, and it caused harm to Jewish people who are feeling pain and fear right now. It did not reflect our party's approval. In working with MPP Jama over the last 24 hours, I understand the personal impact that this is having on her as someone with Palestinian family members. She is not alone in this experience. Your thoughts on that, my first reaction is, nor is anybody who's ever been involved in a war, but that's still no excuse for uh, uh, her comments. What are your thoughts that we have this still continuing? We're going to talk about this uh, in the first segment of my show today, uh, just after we're done here. I'll say this, let me come at this the backwards way. how is Merritt Stiles not entirely look like looking like the weakest leader in political history when she takes the politician who is the least senior, the most rookie politician in the entire legislature, at, tells her to change or take down a comment that she's posted that doesn't align with party values. That politician refuses and Merritt Stiles completely completely backs down and goes, okay, what would happen, Scott, if you, and and this is the question I'm going to ask when we talk to John Best in a few minutes, what would happen if you posted something on social media that your boss demanded you take down because it does not align with CHML's values and you said, no, what do you think? I know exactly what would happen to you. Same would happen to me. Same would happen to Tom on the other side of the glass. Same that would happen to every person listening. And if your boss didn't follow through then, Boom. They, they look entirely like they have nothing. They look completely mealy mouth. They look completely ineffectual. They look like they can be pushed around entirely. And I think Merritt Stiles, who... Honestly, it was in a great position the last few days with Doug yep. Ford and the green belt and looking like, you know, I can focus on that. Merritt Stiles now looks like she is a leader who has no gas in the tank at all. There is no there, there. She has lost her moral authority within her party because she can't even take on her least senior politician who's already been accused of stuff like this in the past. I just, I just can't believe Merritt Stiles back down on this. Um, and it's not like it's the first time. This is That's an what ongoing I said, yeah. pattern. I mean, it's not like, the, you know, we haven't dealt with this uh, before. Does this completely discredit the party? Again, we've talked about this before. It's in a party of extremists, of protesters, not of politicians who are capable of managing a province. We were talking uh, when I, I think it was when I filled in on, maybe it was yesterday when I filled in for you or the day before. Anyway, uh, we were talking to Colin DeMello, uh, Global News Queens yep. Park uh, guy. And I threw out a, a, 
cynical conspiracy theory. I'll grant you this. But when Doug Ford yesterday demanded that Sarah Jamma resign, I think he knew that as soon as he stepped into this, it put Styles in a bad spot. Because now if she forces Sarah Jamma to resign, it looks like she's listening to Doug Ford hmm. and she doesn't want to do that. Or, may, or maybe just everybody else. Well, but, but the fact that Ford called her on it, I think that Doug Ford yeah. may have pulled a genius move here for the reason you, for what you just said. If you can't now get rid of Sarah Jamma, next election, Doug Ford can simply point to that party and say, look, they hold people in their caucus who hold these views. They have people who would not speak out. I mean, eventually Sarah Jamma's later statement said that she deplored uh, violence by Hamas and all this stuff. You can believe that if you want to believe it, or you can believe that it was a forced statement. Nonetheless, Doug Ford can now point to that party and say, is that really what you support? The fact that Sarah Jama and that party didn't get rid of her, I think that puts them exactly as you say, in a tough spot next time, because most, I won't say all, most Jewish people, just to start with, I would believe would suddenly have some real qualms. And I don't know who else, but I would suspect an awful lot of other people who have human decency and saw what happened in Israel on the weekend and might say, you know, I might be for Palestine being liberated, but I can't be for it if the way to get there is children being butchered and innocent civilians being massacred. How do you think the people of Hamilton Center feel about this and the, the national attention this is, has, has created? I think it's a really, uh, see, it's a bit of a conundrum. I don't believe people in Hamilton Center are okay with this, most of them, but I do believe that you could have anybody, anybody run in Hamilton Center under the NDP banner and they would win. And so the question again becomes, I, I'm not entirely sure why Merritt Stiles is defending or going to the wall for Sarah Jama because they could literally run anybody else as an NDP and that person would win. This is, this is a, I, I can't believe that there's a possibility that another party can win that writing. So why, why use up your political capital? here on this. You can expunge her, you can have a by-election or you can put a new candidate in there representing your party the next time and they will win. Guaranteed, they will win. All right, Scott Radley, you can read him in The Spectator. Scott, as always, thanks for the time. Have a great show. Thanks, Scott, you too. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. This one from Mr. Lowe. When the next provincial election happens, I do believe that Sarah Gemma will not be allowed to represent Hamilton Center as an NDP candidate. No doubt the Ontario NDP party will face some losses over this incident next election. Now, have not, uh, have not heard from Jugmeet Singh and his response to all of this. Very unusual. Mr. Lowe. Keep right except to pass.